Welcome to Final Fantasy Weekly. I'm Drew Creesmith. And I'm Ira Creesman. And on this episode, we're going to discuss one of the most intriguing scenes and plot devices in the history of the Final Fantasy series, the incident at Nibelheim and its surrounding events. But surely we will have to focus a great deal on this famous moment from this game, uh, partly because it is a story within a story that is told and retold and understood from varying character perspectives. And we're going to come out and do this now, mention that there are elements of the telling of this story that we are going to go through today that are not true. And that makes it just that much more interesting. It introduces to the series the concept of an unreliable narrator and gets way heavier into themes of memories and character pasts than we've ever gotten before in the franchise. And so we're going to try to take time to set up all of those conversations as well. But when last we left our heroes, <laughs> yeah, they were still at the, they were at the end of a broken off highway in Midgar, deciding to leave the city to go out and find Sephiroth and discover the larger plot at play after he had murdered President Shinra, left our team of Cloud Tifa, Barrett. Aerith and newcomer Red 13 wondering just what to do next. And then they gather on the outskirts of town to try to figure out the next step. Yeah, yeah. So so all this big stuff just happened. And the question now is, well, what one, what do we do next? And two, why is all of this important? Uh, so they decide they're gonna they're split up and they're going to meet. Uh, at the town of Calm, which is not all that far from the giant city of Midgar. I do want to mention a few things. One, we are now open world, right? So this whole time we've been in this giant city and and we haven't seen a world map. Well, now we are out of that city and we're finally uh, we're finally on the world map, which means random battles, which I I guess did happen in the dungeons and stuff yeah. in Midgar, but it's it's such an interesting. This is such a, a flip of the trope for Final Fantasy because typically you either start out on the world map or you quickly find your way to the world map. This is the first time it's taken so long to get outside of town. Right. Um, and, I, and I think it really, one, lends a lot of weight to the opener and sets like this real emotional center for the story and for those characters that I named a moment ago. But I think it's also... An extraordinary way of, you know, I do think that especially future Final Fantasy games 
tend to lag in the middle. Maybe all of them other than six and, and I would argue seven. I think 10 does a pretty good job of not lagging in the middle. Uh, I, I think long epic stories in general tend to lag in the middle. And Final Fantasy VII has this extraordinary way of continuing to present the player, the viewer, the reader with more questions. And so we had this super interesting, almost quite well, actually it will be a standalone story about this city and its inhabitants and the problems and the corporation and the battle for the planet. And now we're presented with this other huge question. So now what happens? Who is this man? What is it Cloud is about to tell us? Because he's hinted that he's he knows more, and that's part of the... We're going to regroup it. Calm, spelled with a K. Even the name of the town, the calm before the storm, the you know this is a very foreboding moment, and as classic as so many of the things that happened in Midgar are... The scene we're going to talk about in depth today is one of the most famous. I mean, there's a standalone anime called The Last Order all about it. Um, it's amazing how they managed to keep giving you these events that push the plot forward, yes, but also continue to ask the, the viewer questions. There are a few things I want to mention before we get to Calm. Uh, you can go straight there, but you can also uh, sort of deviate a bit and uh, and make your way out to the Chocobo Ranch. It is worth noting that the further you get from Midgar, the brighter the sun gets, which I think is is one metaphorical in that uh, you know because Midgar is sucking all the life from the planet. The the further you get from it, the more well for one thing, the more grass there is, which I think is not meant to be metaphorical. But also like there's probably pollution and stuff in the air, so. Uh, the further away you get, the more light can come through. Um, but also just like that oppressive shadow cast by this giant city eases a bit as you get out into the bigger world. Yeah. You can get out to the Chocobo Ranch. Actually, I think they call it the Chocobo Farm. Billy's Chocobo Farm. Which is a little bit out of your way, but I want to mention it first because uh, if you go there and you talk to one of the Chocobos, all the Chocobos will do this funky little dance and it's sort of like this cute... <laughs> yes, they will. The, there's this cute music box version of the Chocobo theme, which is fun. And then you get your first summon material. And we have not talked a whole lot about gameplay, but I think it is worth noting that you don't get your first summon until after you leave Midgar. Yeah, that's something I know uh, some people have taken exception with in the remake, which, w whatever, I'm not sure there were necessarily storyline reasons why it had to be that way, but I do think it adds to the thing I was talking about earlier, which is the pacing of it. They've sort of set you up with this whole introductory chapter. Now you know how to use Materia to cast basic magic, to buff your characters in battle, to do defensive things and heal. Uh, and now that you're moving on to the next stage, now that the world is opening up and it's becoming bigger, you're given... The, for the first time, the power to summon the gods. A kind of a silly right. one, but... <laughs> well, the gods are sometimes very silly, and in this case, it is a Moogle riding a chocobo. <laughs> Just the cutest, most <laughs> ridiculous thing ever. Yeah. Just stampedes out and slams into an enemy, and, and I think the, the Moogle is bucked off and, and is dizzy, and, and that's it. Yeah. Summoning the gods. Well, 
Like you said, it it can be very silly yes. sometimes. Yes, indeed. There is a marsh just beyond the Chocobo Ranch, and in this marsh lives a giant serpent called the Midgar Zolom, uh, which is a precursor to other Final Fantasies that will have uh, a big dragon serpent creature na- named the Midgar Zormer. Midgar Zormer? Yeah. Uh, which is a reference to the Jormungandr, and I'm sure my pronunciation's a bit off. That's close. Uh, which is, was it? Okay, good. Uh, which is a giant serpent, the world serpent, and it's you know the the son of the gods of some of the gods. I think a giant and Loki. Anyway, it is it's one of the big monsters that gets defeated by the gods at one point, and it encircles Midgar, which is the realm of humans, and it's so big that it's supposed to be able to surround the earth and swallow its own tail, which is where we get, uh, which is similar to the Ouroboros, which is the the snake swallowing its own tail, which is a symbol of eternity, and so on and so forth. The story in Norse mythology is that once it releases its tail, that's the beginning of the end. That's when Ragnarok is coming. Uh, but in Final Fantasy, it's a it's a giant monster, a giant serpent monster that lives in the marsh. Kind of circling Midgar. <laughs> kind of, kind of. But but if you try to cross the marsh, uh, you won't be fast enough. It will catch you, and it is way more powerful than you, and you cannot defeat it. It at this point. will so you kill can't. you. It will definitely kill you. It's a badass monster. Uh, don't take don't no crap off of nobody. Oh, no, That's right, cool runnings. <laughs> you got to get a chocobo to cross the marsh. Well... Uh, there are no chocobos right now, and that's just a narrative convenience so that you have to go to Calm because that's where the story, the next story will be told. So our heroes uh, give up trying to cross the marsh to follow Sephiroth and instead go back to Calm, which is what they said they were going to do, and Barrett insists, let's hear your story. You know, the one about Sephiroth and the crisis of the planet. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is our first telling of the incident at Nibelheim. One of the things that I think could be like a little throwaway piece of dialogue, but it's interesting considering, as Barrett also says, let's hear it all. And we decisively do not hear it all. So speaking of our Norse mythology, uh, Niflheim, which Nibelheim is named after, uh, is one of the realms in Norse mythology. So there's Midgar, like we talked about, the, the land of, of humans. But Niflheim is the, uh, the place of the ice giants, basically. It's, it's the world of mist and snow and ice. Uh, and it is the the polar opposite of I think M- Musselheim, which is the the world of fire and and magma and so on. Uh, but in Final Fantasy VII, it's it's basically this town off in the mountains. They will even mention the cold mountain air at one point, and it's the home of a Mako reactor. And well, let's get into the story, shall we? Yeah. Uh, so it actually begins with Cloud explaining a few things, doing a, a little bit of a, a prologue, saying that he considered Sephiroth a friend, and Barrett kind of gives him a weird look. Wait, 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 the guy who... Wait, I thought this guy was our enemy. I said, 
He said, well, we worked on several missions together. We became friends. He even refers to him at one point as his war buddy, which I thought right, was an interesting yeah. comment. Which yeah. It, and, and I think it's a really good way of selling this idea that the two of them could have become very close over a relatively short period of time because we know that happens. Uh, and it does remind us that both of these guys are war, they're veterans of a war. Right. And even during this conversation, one of the things that we won't be able to point out all of them, but there's a lot of dialogue boxes of Tifa just having an ellipsis. Like she's about to jump into the conversation and say something and doesn't. And those are very purposeful and, and telling as well. So when Cl even as Cloud is setting it up, like we were war buddies, Tifa's like, uh, um, just let him go. Um, yep. I think, uh, oh, well, it happens a little bit later, but there are times even where like Barrett will interrupt and Tifa will be like, I'm listening. Yeah. Um, for reasons that will be not become a fully apparent till much later in the story, but uh, very, very interestingly done. So Cloud talks about the war that we've heard about several times before now. The, the war that Eris' adopted mother's husband died in. We don't really know who the war was with at this point, but you and I know, and we've talked about the war with Wutai, right? And this is the war that Shinra, the energy company, is fighting with another region, right? So Shinra runs this city-state, basically, of Midgar as, as a kind of plutocracy, you know, the, this corporation that owns this city fighting with a, a, another nation-state. And using genetically engineered soldiers to do it. Right, right. And we're going to get some details on that here in a bit, too. But Cloud mentions that he, he basically missed the war. By the time he was first class in Soldier, the war was over. But after that war, it was Soldier's duty to put down any resistance against Shinra. So again, an energy company employing a military to put down resistance against that corporation. And he says, five years ago, I was 16. So first of all, that is mind-blowing to me, that he was a veteran of combat missions at 16. And now we get to our, our flashback. So this is uh, flashback number what now? How many have we done? We've had The Promise. Flashback to The Promise, yeah. And uh, Aerith's mom telling the story. So the story starts in the back of a truck. It's raining hard. There are uh, four people in the back and one guy driving. This, it's a pretty spare kind of truck. It's, a, it's, it's clearly a military truck. When I think of war movies and, and guys sitting in the back of the truck, this is the kind of truck I think of. The guy driving and the two sort of grunt Shinra soldiers are in that basic blue uniform we've seen several times before. Full face helmet and mask. Uh, but the two characters we uh, we can see features of are Cloud and Sephiroth. And Sephiroth, even in his blocky sort of pixel likeness, is very handsome. Uh, yeah, well, this he, is the first time the... we've ever seen him. Right, right. This is our Jaws moment, right? We, we've, we've built up this scary monster. We haven't seen him until now. And then here he is, just sitting in the back of a truck with, with our guy, with Cloud. 
Uh, he's wearing a, a long black jacket and a sort of a black, I don't know, uniform. And he's got long silver hair and, and bright green eyes. And I, again, you know, it's sort of this blocky graphics, but I'm, I'm certain he is meant to be very handsome. And when we see him in, in, uh, in art and in the full motion videos, he, he's certainly got that pretty voy- vibe about him. There's also no music in this scene. Which, whenever that's the case in Final Fantasy, you notice it because the music tends to always be there and always be really good. And there's just rain and the sound of the windshield wipers as yeah. this conversation yeah. begins to unfold between this character we're already scared of, but now is being like very calm and friendly and centered and focused while Cloud is like running around the back of the truck, doing squats, talking about how awesome it is to be in Soldier, (laughs) like just all the fidgety energy in the world, and Sephiroth is leaning against the side of the truck. And this is the first time we've seen Cloud like this, all kind of anxious, kind of animated, kind of amped up. Right, he's been so cool in modern times. Yeah. So... And he's 16 years old, right, in this flashback, which I guess would make him 21 in, in, the, uh, in modern, modern times. One of the things he, he does, if you have him do it, is he uh, can check on one of the grunts, one of the guys in blue in the full face mask. He asks, you know, how are you doing, which is nice, right? That's, I'm soldier first class, checking on the grunts. Thank you, Cloud. Well done. Apparently, the, this guy, the grunt, has been kind of sick. And Cloud's like, oh, I wouldn't know. I've never had motion sickness which is a weird flex, I guess, but all right. Yeah, well, yeah. Sephiroth tells him to settle down, uh, and Cloud's like, oh, but they gave me new material, and I'm so excited, and this and that. And Sephiroth's, man, you are just like a kid. And I would like to point out that Cloud is 16 years old. He is a kid. But as you pointed out earlier, (laughs) he's also a veteran, not really of a war, but he's been on military missions. He's, you know, been... People very clearly are expected to grow up much younger in this world. Right, right. Well, and sometimes in our world, too. For sure. Yeah. Sephiroth uh, eventually gets to the briefing, and he says, Our mission is to investigate an old Mako reactor. It's malfunctioning and producing brutal creatures. Hmm. Yes. I love that phrase, and... I worry that it is a slight mistranslation and won't be used again, uh, ever. <laughs> it's a bit awkward. It's a bit awkward because people don't talk that way, but I want to name uh, punk metal, whatever, hard rock Final Fantasy cover band, Brutal Creatures. So we got bombs and monitors. We got Brutal Creatures. Yeah. <laughs> Those are the Lots good Lots of band names. Yeah, Brutal Creatures, right. man. So he says, uh, we are to dispose of the creatures, locate the problem, uh, and neutralize it. And then he says, and all of this is at the Mako reactor at Nibelheim. And Klaus says, oh, that's where I'm from. And before we can jump too deep into that, uh, the the truck slams to a halt or maybe hits something, uh, and our, our heroes jump outside, and there's this giant green dragon there. And we don't get the usual battle music. We get this sort of quiet music of, of deep notes. 
And during this battle with the dragon, again, there's like not really music. There's just this kind of persistent heartbeat noise that we've heard before during the scene when Genova was taken from her cell and we had to follow the trail of blood up to the Shinra boardroom. But it's also setting us up. This is a precursor to the break later, a piece of music we haven't heard fully actually exists underneath it. We just won't hear the full thing until we get to the climax of this story. So through gameplay, we get a very clear picture of how badass yeah. Sephiroth is. Because you can control a cloud, but Sephiroth is controlled automatically. And he deals like thousands of points of damage with a single attack. And I want to take a moment to compare swords, which I feel like could be <laughs> a, a metaphor. Sure. But we haven't even really talked about Cloud's sword yet. The Buster Sword, the iconic weapon of Cloud Strife, is a giant blade. It is, it is wide, it is thick, it's, it's shaped kind of like a cleaver, uh, and nobody in real life would be able to wield a weapon like this, but Cloud can wield it because he is a soldier. He's, he's a first-class soldier. He's had this training. He's had the, uh, the treatment to make him super-powered. He can wield this sword and swing it around and, and flip it and stuff, and it's really cool. Sephiroth also has a really big sword, but rather than being a big, almost clunky piece of metal like Cloud's is, it's an extraordinarily long katana that he wields one-handed, by the way. Like, there's no way a real human being could use a weapon like this effectively. For one thing, it's just too long. Like, as a lever, it's just too long. The, the center of gravity would be down the blade. Uh, the fulcrum point, if you were to use it as a lever, would be way down the blade. You try to swing this at something that has any resistance, you're going to snap it off at the handle. Right, right, right. And, and I think that's part of the point, right? Like, these are people who can use these melee weapons effectively and in, 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 in such a way that would be inconceivable for human beings. And for one thing, that's like an anime trope, right? Like, using these weird, wild, uh, impractical weapons. But at the same time, the way he uses it, the way he sort of tucks it behind his back at the end of combat is just very smooth and elegant and, again, badass. Yeah, he kind of floats around the battlefield and his slashes are very, they're almost graceful. And yeah, like you said, you were sold. And this point has been made in other mediums and it's worth making again that... It is just so completely sold. We've seen the aftermath of a lot of the damage that Sephiroth can do. Like you said, we've seen you know, a lot of Jaws-style things, and now we're seeing it in action, and it's, it's incredible. Like you said, if, if the dragon happens to attack Cloud, he'll just die. Sephiroth will just bring him right back, kill the dragon on his own. Um, and the other thing, as you said, Cloud is supposed to be pretty amazing in his own right. If Sephiroth is that much better than this other guy who can wield an impossible weapon, it's just, we know we're being shown the mountain we must climb to eventually beat this game. That, that this guy is going to be real problems. So after combat, we jump to Nibelheim. Sephiroth says to Cloud, how does it feel? It's your first time back to your hometown in a long time, right? I wouldn't know because I don't have a hometown. 
my mother, Genova, died after giving birth to me and my father. He sort of trails off. And it strikes me as interesting that Sephiroth is feeling a little chatty. I don't know if that's meant to be sort of expository, just so that we as the players can understand what's going on and get some of this exposition, or if, if Sephiroth is just meant to be kind of open here, which, which I appreciate, right? Like he's, he's a person, he's got, he's got moods, doesn't always have to be closed off and, and taciturn, as it were. Yeah, that's one of the things that, you know, they go into more in some of the supplemental material. Not that I'm calling Crisis Core supplemental materials, right. uh, some of the extra stuff that, that came later. But yeah, I, I think it, it gives you more of a sense. One of the things they are trying to let you know here is that there was a time where we never got this sense with Kefka. You know, there's right. there's maybe a couple of references to he could have been a normal person, but as a very young person, he was experimented on and never had a chance. We're here, we, we're seeing a fully grown adult Sephiroth who seems to be a pretty good guy, all things considered here. Right, right. Um, Even though he's like a soldier of this weird plutocracy and... Sure. He, he's still, he, he's a person. He's not, he's not just a caricature. Right. Also, I wanted to note here, which I guess as well as anywhere else, as we're wondering about, you know, how chatty was Sephiroth really about, again, all of this gets filtered through. Cloud is telling this story and from his perspective, and as we'll come to learn later, he's not accurately remembering the story. Something else that's really interesting, and you've sort of mentioned this a couple times, but I wanted to draw a point to it. This is an interactive flashback. So the promise and the story of how Aerith came to live with Elmira just play out how they play out. They're, they're cut scenes. You could do that almost exactly the same in a TV show or a film. This... As Iris said, you can walk around and talk to the soldiers and hear about the motion sickness or not. And it really starts to open up here in just a minute where you get to walk around and decide what Cloud did in his memory. Right. Yeah. It gets really layered here. So it's also worth noting that Sephiroth just mentioned that his mother is Genova. And Barrett from Modern Times interjects and says, hey, wait a minute. Yeah. Isn't Genova that headless floating torso thing with the eye nipple that we saw in the in the laboratory back at Shinra Tower? Isn't that, that Genova? And I think this is where Tifa's like, shh, I'm listening. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> but, but it's worth asking that question. Right? It it's worth remembering. Hey, we've seen Genova. What? Right. So Cloud can sort of wander around here a little bit and interact with the, the Shinra grunts again, uh, talk about practicing the pose, right? So this yeah. is where the this is how this is how Soldier First Class stands, uh, and the other soldier will say something like, "I really don't want to be in Soldier," which is interesting. Yeah, Aerith will interject with basically talking to Tifa here, saying, uh, "So you were childhood friends and you're reuniting." Right. And Cloud says, I, "I was surprised by Tifa." Without, without further context. Yeah. 
Uh, and then he mentions the town was quiet. Maybe they were afraid of us. I noted that line too. Where he says maybe maybe they're afraid of the monsters, or maybe they're afraid of us. Yeah. Right. So uh, Sephiroth, man in charge. Uh, we leave for the reactor at dawn. You may visit your friends and family. Yeah. Oh, thanks, dude. Yeah. <laughs> and and this is where the interactive memory really gets going, right? Because you can sort of wander around town. The two houses of most interest to me are Tifa's house and Cloud's house. Sure. So if you go into Tifa's house, Tifa will interject from modern times into the memory and say, did you go in my house? And you can say yes or no. And if you say no, you can't go in the house, right? But if you want to wander around Tifa's house, you have to admit, yeah, I went into your house. And then it's, did you go in my room? Did you read that letter? And again, like it, it, this makes me squirmy. Like I am uncomfortable with some of this. Well, yeah. Like, you're admitting to invading this woman's privacy. The other thing is, as you've mentioned before, and, and we've sort of drawn the analogy to Shadow of the Colossus, you could choose not to. Uh, right. But you won't learn as much about this story. And it's sort of a comment on some of the JRPG tropes that we kind of make fun of about how, well, you do just go into other people's houses and into their rooms and read their stuff. That's, that's what you do. Right. Well, and, and the reason Tifa's asking is because she's not there. We haven't met Tifa yet back in Nibelheim. Uh, so the letter is is mostly just a little bit of background about Tifa going to Midgar. She doesn't have a job yet, and she's trying to assure her parents that everything's fine. There's also a piano that you can play, which reminds me of Final Fantasy V and playing all the pianos. Yeah. And then we go to Cloud's house. Cloud explains that his father died when he was young. And his friends say, but you saw your mother, right? And he says, yeah, I saw my mom. A few days later, she died. But when I saw her, she looked fine. Yeah. Like, what? Dude. (laughs) And also, I think that's like the only line we ever get about his dad. Right. Yeah. Unless, I mean, if we see one later in the game, we'll, we'll point it out. And I just didn't remember from last several playthroughs, but I, I cannot recall any other reference to Cloud's father. Certainly we never meet him. He's not around. No. Uh, Cloud was raised by his mother. And then we get a series of flashbacks that are sort of interrupted, like like a series of scenes that are interrupted by by a literal flash on the screen, implying that Cloud doesn't really want to think about this or talk about this. But this is where we get the line about... I bet the girls never leave you alone. Right. So this is, okay. <laughs> this is a flashback within a flashback or a memory within a memory. Right. Of a scene that we've already had before. He had this memory when he was falling asleep at Aerith's house. Right. About right. how the girls won't leave him alone or or not. And his ambiguous answer and you're right. Now there's this added layer to it. It seems very obvious that this is something he, a memory he's trying not to have, which is interesting because he's having it inside of another memory. And eventually he says, let's stop this. This is the, I don't want to talk about this. That's, that line hits me, dude. Like that line really gave me shivers going back through this. And it has several times before. It's a very, 
simple line, but when he says, let's stop this, it, it's just so clear how much pain he's feeling thinking about his mother. We can also meet a character named Zangan. Uh, Zangan is a martial arts master. He wears a long red cape and has a ponytail, and he can jump around, and he kind of shows off. But he says, I travel around the world teaching children martial arts. Uh, And there's a very talented young woman in this town. Uh, And he's referring to Tifa, of course. So Zangan is where Tifa got her start in martial arts, which is fun. I also choose to believe that Zangan and Duncan are... Oh, interdimensional Final fantasy six brothers yeah. yeah that's great i like that a lot that which would make tifa and sabin peers of the same school of martial arts <laughs> excellent i want to see tifa learn fire dance and i want to see sabin learn dolphin kick yes <laughs> all right so uh eventually the next morning comes Sephiroth says, I have hired a guide to the Mako reactor. Oh, there's one thing also, just real quickly, and we don't need to go back, but the the night before, another thing that I thought uh, really added to the mysteriousness of this whole situation, but Sephiroth is looking out the window and kind of just enjoying the scenery, but he also says, I feel like I know this place, Uh, which just kind of adds to all of the weirdness that's going on here. The guide Sephiroth has hired is indeed Tifa Lockhart. Uh, It is worth noting that Tifa uh, is in her cowgirl outfit. She's got the the cowboy hat on and the sort of fringed vest and the boots. Uh, Definitely not the outfit we are used to seeing her in. But we have seen the outfit before through a brilliant little bit of flashbacks when we were getting just not full flashback scenes. The second time we were in a reactor and Cloud freaked out. We saw a little bit of her in this outfit getting slashed. Cloud objects. He says it is way too dangerous. Sephiro says there's no problem if you protect her. Which, dude, not cool. Yeah. (laughs) And then there's a a villager who really, really wants a picture of Sephiro. And he tried to get one earlier and Sephiro didn't hear or ignored him and just went to the end. And Cloud's like, well, I'm here. You can get a picture of me. And dude's like, I don't take pictures of nobody. Yeah, I know. What a jerk. <laughs> uh, but he, our, our villager friend here, he works up the courage. He asks Sephiroth for a picture. Eventually, Sephiroth decides to grant the request. And he, Cloud, and Tifa pose for a picture. So a couple of hometown heroes uh, and the great war hero Sephiroth. Uh, and I'm sure nothing about that picture will come back to haunt us at all. It's... <sighs> And one of those things that the first time you see it, you're like, well, that's kind of interesting or whatever, kind of fun. And you think nothing of it. And then every subsequent playthrough, it gives you shivers when they get together and take that picture. I also wanted to note, and we could have talked about it later, but that it's an interesting plot point that could only be done through the technology that they now have available. No other Final Fantasy could have had a photograph Um play an important role and they would later in games too including of course and most especially in Final Fantasy 15 but yeah making good use of the fact that we're now in an era that has things like photography and just sort of in general in in real life photographs are memories right they're snapshots in time 
quite literally. Right. right. That it is a way for us to remember things that have happened uh, in, in a very, this is what this particular moment was. Right. Uh, that memory often does not capture. Memories are, just, just my memory is not always accurate. I know that. Uh, that's why I take notes about things. That's why I update my resume. That's why I take pictures, right? And, and so that in a flashback, in a game so tied into its characters' memories that we're going to have this photograph is particularly interesting. Yeah. So we are treated to a full motion video of uh, the, the mountain range around Nibelheim and Mount Nibel itself. We get that line about the cold mountain air was the same as always. Uh, there are these, there's a cool music and there's these spiky mountains and we get this pan around Mount Nibel and the, the Mako reactor set up there. And our characters make their way through the mountains up to this old rope bridge. And of course, the old rope bridge breaks. Yeah, that's what those old uh, rope bridges do. <laughs> that is what they're there for. That drops our heroes onto a pathway down the mountain. And and so we've got Sephiroth and Cloud and Tifa and only one of the grunts. There were two grunts this whole time and only one of them uh, makes it. And Sephiroth's got this line where he's like, look, I know it's kind of callous, but we got this mission. We can't go around looking for this dude. We got to go. Yeah. We make our way into the caves uh, and the caves here are, quote, a mysterious color. And we happen upon uh, this, this fluid bubbling from the rocks uh, and light shining down upon it. And Sephiroth explains that this is a Mako fountain. This is where the energy of, of the planet is bubbling to the surface. And that's why there's a reactor here, because there's so much Mako energy in these mountains. Antifa has the observation, if the reactor continues to suck up energy, this fountain will dry up too. Which I think is a very clear metaphor for if capitalism continues to suck the life out of people, we are going to destroy the beautiful things. Right. And also a, a clear sign that she's starting to head toward the path that will lead her to avalanche. Right. Sephiroth gets another explainer here. He says that uh, when Mako is condensed, materia is produced. And materia is that thing that we've talked about before that gives our characters their superpowers, which ties into the, the crystals being shattered in five, the crystals granting powers in three, and Magicite from Final Fantasy VI all granting our, our characters their abilities. Right. So the, the natural elements of, of whatever Final Fantasy world we are in is what grants our heroes the power to then save the world. I love the parallel also to, as we mentioned, Cloud gives the tutorial on how to use Materia, which gives him a sort of expertise, a certain trustworthiness when it comes to the ways of the world, which allows us to believe this story at face value in some ways. It, it helps his credibility. And this helps Sephiroth's credibility. He knows what he's talking about. He's in tune with the ways of the planet. He knows where magic, materia, and the word we haven't heard yet, life stream, what all that stuff is about. And so I love that these two things, literally him explaining where materia comes from, parallels Cloud's explanation of how to use it from earlier in the game. 
Sephiroth goes on to explain that the knowledge and wisdom of the ancients is held in materia. So anybody uh, who has that knowledge can use the power of the planet, which is basically what magic is in this world. And then he laughs, and we're about to be introduced to another character through, uh, not through meeting them, but through conversation. He says, A man once told me not to use unscientific terms like magic. Hojo was an inexperienced man assigned to take over for a great scientist. So, Sephiroth has been taught not to use unscientific terms like magic or mysterious power. And then he has this aside where he's dismissive of Hojo, that creepy, greasy dude uh, we met in the, in the Shinra boardroom last episode. Uh, but he holds this other person, this great scientist, in great esteem. They get through the caves of the mountains up to the reactor, and Cloud gets the moment of being able to tell a woman, Tifa, you wait here, it's too dangerous. <laughs> yeah, he hasn't learned now, his lesson yet with this in the future with Aerith, like he will. Right. Well, and to be fair, she's just 16, but so is he. Yeah, oh, and she's not yet trained. Uh, he, right, he is, doesn't have the same experience. Yeah. He's got that, the the combat experience. Sephiroth has a different take on it. He says only authorized personnel are allowed in. Uh, there are a bunch of Shinra secrets here. Uh, and the remaining grunt he assigns to keep an eye on her. Right. We go into the reactor, and we make our way. It's it's kind of this weird thing where, like, you have to walk on the pipes. Like, why don't we just go into the reactor and, like, go into the main entrance where there's this walkway? But you got to go on the pipes and climb down a chain. Uh, maybe because it's defective, because the whole reactor is defective. Right. Either way, we quickly make our way to a room. This room uh, has these tiered platforms and upon each platform is a an egg-shaped shiny metallic gray pod thing yeah uh, each one with a circular window in it so you can look into the pod thing as every good horror movie allows you to do yeah uh, there's creepy red lighting we're back to the creepy music uh, and there's a set of stairs leading up to the to a door and above the door and on some of the pipes are, are stenciled these, this word, Genova. Yeah, so I think now is a good time to mention something I wanted to earlier, but this actually says it. Do you remember when we played this scene, this part of the game, that we had the whole house to ourselves and had moved the PlayStation upstairs? We had the big TV, and it was just you and me, and Cloud, and Tifa, and Sephiroth, yeah, and and Genova. And for anyone listening, we lived in this place that's kind of out in the middle of nowhere. There are yeah, big no windows in the street house. Lights. Yeah, 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 nothing around. Yeah, there's there's no traffic sounds. Like even just where I live now in town. I, I live near the hospital, so I can hear the helicopter going sometimes. I can hear sirens sometimes. But just traffic, right? Right. And it's a fairly quiet neighborhood other than the hospital. But there's a street light. You hear dogs barking. Out where we lived, there was nothing. Yeah. And this it was, was dark. just a rare night when our, our parents happened to be out late. And we knew we were going to be able to stay up and play the game and we almost never did this it just happened to be for this scene and so they're starting to build the terror 
here for what's coming. And we've mentioned Final Fantasy's only really ever walked up to spookiness and scariness and horror a couple of times, including once earlier in the game. But this whole sequence, starting basically from right here, and it may have had something to do with the of where we were and that we had gone out of our way to create a special atmosphere that became even scarier through this game, but this freaked me out and still gives me shivers. This moment when you when you pull up and look at the creature f- from here on to the... Well, everybody knows what's coming. <laughs> so the doors won't open, and, and Sephiroth doesn't really react yet to seeing his mother's name above the door. Sure. But he finds the malfunctioning part. He tells Cloud to close the valve. Like he could have done it, but he says, hey, close the valve. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and then he's trying to figure out what's going on. So he looks through one of the, the little windows. And he has a pretty subdued reaction. He says, Hojo, doing this won't put you on the same level as Professor Gast. Yeah, not sure that would have been my first reaction. But it's a hint that while... This is not what he was expecting to see. He knew something was going on. Right. So he says, this is a system that condenses and freezes Mako energy, which, when working correctly, Mako uh, becomes materia under these conditions. But Hojo puts something else in here, and then he invites Cloud to look in. And this, like the mist clear, you, you get in and the wind is all foggy and it's misty in there and then it sort of clears and you get this wild uh, image of a, a dude with tentacles coming off his head and maybe scales and it's, it's a monster. They're making monsters in here. Shinra and Hojo are making monsters in a Mako reactor. That thing freaked me out, dude. Creepy. Yeah. Yeah. It's still creepy, like the original. I'm very curious whenever they do the remake part of this but the, the uh, just that still image floating there look uh. yeah yeah Sephiroth explains and we've had this explained before members of soldier are humans showered with mako but these people have been exposed to way more mako than you which is is a revelation like oh the monsters the uptick in monsters is because shinra is experimenting on people and we speculated about this before like why are all these monsters in the slum why are there like giant robot hands and and these weird experiments and mutants and stuff in the slums of midgar and we we speculated oh maybe maybe it has to do with that mad scientist hojo well here it is confirmed cloud says wait normal members of soldier are you different and you, that was the first hint that Sephiroth's starting to think, maybe I am different. Yeah. Uh, like seeing his mother's name stenciled above the door has, has triggered something in him, has, has triggered a thought process. Wait, so if that's my mother beyond that door and there are monsters in these pods, what, am I not a human showered with Mako to become a soldier like, like all the other soldiers? Am I perhaps different? was I created this way too. And then dude draws his sword. And so that, you know, me saying, oh, that's kind of odd. He had this subdued reaction. Well, it's not subdued anymore. Nah. He He's going, he starts slashing the pods. Uh, and Cloud like backs up like, oh, okay. Maybe I need to give this man his, uh, give him his space. And Sephiroth says the thing that all heroes of all stories say. I shouldn't say all, but... 
He says, ever since I was small, I felt I was different. I felt I was special. And that's, you know, that's Superman. That's Harry Potter. That's Hercules, right? In, in Final Fantasy VI, that's Terra. Yeah. Ever since I was small, I felt I was different. Hell, that's every teenager. Yeah. We all feel like we're different. Not all of us feel like we're special, but we all feel like we're different. And so now he's, he's flipping that on its head. But not like this, he says. So we haven't, we, we didn't really do a character study of Sephiroth upon his introduction and similar to why we didn't with Cloud because from here on, from that statement on, he's not Jaws anymore. Much of the questions and themes at the core of this game revolve around him as well, the villain. And in this moment, I love this line so much because you're right. Cecil in Final Fantasy IV was born different, born special, was literally destined to do the thing. Titus was trapped by his destiny, but destined to do the thing. And heartbreakingly, I said for me anyway, and, and people can go a lot of heartbreakingly. Sephiroth reaches the conclusion, it seems here, that his destiny is to be this abomination, is that he was meant for this other thing, and, and he seems to fight it here for a moment, or maybe in fighting it, he becomes it. But yeah, you see that he was just right there on the edge. Maybe he could have been the greatest hero of all time. But he was so close, and and he was yeah that this happens to him that he comes to the realization and responds to it the way he does is tragic. So am I detecting in you a bit of sympathy for the villain? I do. I do have sympathy yeah. for this villain, and that's something we'll be able to continue to talk about because most of the Final Fantasy villains you you don't. I don't know if most, but certainly to this point. Uh, right. in the series. Right. Golbez, I do. Kefka, not so much. Right. Yeah, yeah. So I I think it is, the, I think the Cecil and Terra parallel are interesting, right? Because he asks, am I human? Um, and, and Cecil and Terra literally aren't, right? They're half Esper, half human, or half Lunarian, half human. But just because someone has suffered a trauma like this doesn't necessarily mean, and we've talked about this before, like, suffering trauma is not an excuse for becoming a supervillain. It might be understandable. It might be sympathetic. But he's still about to make some seriously messed up choices. Right, right. I think 95 times out of 100, if not 99, I'm honestly not sure I've ever seen a piece of art that truly excuses the actions of a supervillain because of a trauma. I think it can be an overused right. trope and sometimes lazily done, which can maybe make it seem that way. But I do think that the comment at the core of it is almost always what you said. Here are the bad decisions that this person made. And I actually think your analogy earlier about being a teenager is a perfect one because both Cloud and Sephiroth are like 
and in this particular instance, maybe exactly like lost teenagers who aren't sure if the world around them is what they thought it was, if they are who they thought they were, maybe they're a totally per- different person than they thought they've been their whole life. And that's a scary thing to find out about yourself when you're young. Like, I might not be who I thought I was. And they both wrestle with that question. That is the central question for both of them. I might not right. be who I thought I was. And Cloud, <laughs> more than we realize. Right, right. And, Well, and... Mm. And, and Sephiroth appears to have been deliberately lied to, which we're about to get to. Right. And that pisses off everybody. Right. But I think there's a great message, a really powerful message, that's one of the reasons why this game is beloved by literally millions of people, especially those of us who played it at or around our teenage years, about self-discovery and the way to do it that becomes totally destructive to yourself and the people around you, the Sephiroth path. And the way that hurts like hell and will hurt the people around you to some degree, but they'll be there for you. The cloud path of being insecure and not knowing who you are and what you're really about, but allowing yourself to work through it rather than explode in anger at the world who lied to you as, as, as justified as you may be. In that anger. Right. And it's not like Cloud isn't angry necessarily. But like you said, he, he works through it. He, he allows himself, he allows his friends to help him. And he allows himself to figure things out. Right. So we get another interruption here. And I kind of dig this because th- the story, the game says, do you want to pause and save the game? Like the game is saying, we know we've thrown a lot of exposition at you. Do you want to take a minute? Why don't you get, yeah, get a drink of coffee, uh-huh. go to the bathroom, get your blanket because it's dark outside and, and you and your brother are scared. Right. And then we jump back in and Aerith says, Tifa, you were waiting outside? And Tifa responds first with an ellipsis. And then, yes. Yeah. <sighs> this is so damn good <laughs> have we mentioned by the way how exquisitely executed like this is extraordinary storytelling sorry continue so cloud says we uh went back to nibelheim and sephiroth confined himself to the inn he didn't talk to me and then he just disappeared and eventually we found him in the biggest building in nibelheim and tifa interjects she says the villagers used to call it the Shinra Mansion because executives from Shinra would come by to check on the uh, the reactor and they would stay there and maybe there was a whole family of, of people who were close to Shinra who lived there. Uh, and eventually Cloud and that same grunt we've been talking with every once in a while, they go to Shinra Mansion. Uh, and this is a, a spooky, grand, run-down building. It's, it's obviously at one point was a, a really impressive house. I guess Shinra executives don't come by very much anymore, though, because there's water stains on the wall, uh, and it's got the whole haunted mansion thing going on. It looks like it was designed by Tim Burton, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And the grunt uh, at one point will say, "Uh, I haven't seen Sephiroth in a while, but he went into that room, uh, and then like, you find these very obvious secret stairwell. Yeah. Yeah. You go down the stairwell into these purple caves, and we get into a library. 
there are uh, a bunch of bookcases and stacks of books, and there's some glowy science things going on in here. Yeah, yeah, glowy science things. Yeah, yeah, and the camera angles are just a little off. Yeah, like in this room, we're about to get all this exposition, uh, and we're about to see Sephiroth break. Nothing is quite at a right angle, which I'm sure was intentional. Yes. Sephiroth, who I'm pretty sure is talking to himself, Cloud just happens to be there, uh, has been reading all of these books, and he says, an apparently dead organism found in a 2,000-year-old geological strata. Professor Gast named it Genova. Okay. Okay. And then we start getting, it will say like uh, year X, month X, day X. I think we're just meant to understand that uh, on this date, on this date, like we're reading uh, journal entries. Right? Yeah. So he says, uh, Genova confirmed to be an ancient. An ancient. We've heard of ancients before. Eris' mother was an ancient. Right? So these are the people, this was that ancient civilization. And apparently they had something to do with the planet and can talk to the planet. But we, we saw Eris' mother in a flashback, and she looked a lot like a human. And Aerith looks a lot like a human. And Genova is a headless torso with an eyeball on her nipple. We should also mention that uh, Sephiroth and Aerith have very similar-looking hair. And, yes, they do. Uh, I found out in subsequent materials that at one point in development, there was consideration of having the two of them be uh, brother and sister and both be actual ancients. So, so there's a bit of a disconnect there, right? But we've seen mutated humans just recently, so sure, why not? And then uh, Sephiroth talks about, okay, so the Genova project was approved, and we're going to use Mako Reactor 1, and we get this another weird angle as he's walking down the aisles, and so he's walking straight back into this room, but he's sort of walking at this odd angle. And like you said, the camera angles and the music really sell that he's losing it here as he's pacing around, and... That's one of those things about the cinematic nature of Final Fantasy VII, what made it so successful. We couldn't do these kinds of camera angles before, and nobody was doing them before this in video games. It kind of reminds me of that GameCube game, uh, Eternal Darkness, where as the characters slowly start to lose their sanity, the sure. camera angles get, they, they get a little off or yeah. it gets a little wobbly. Yeah. So Sephiroth says the thing we're all thinking. My mother's name is Genova. The Genova Project. Is this a coincidence? Professor Gast, why didn't you tell me? Why did you die? And then Cloud can walk up to him and try to talk to him. And he'll say, please, let me be alone. So Cloud explains. It's almost a voiceover as Sephiroth continues to read obsessively. He didn't come out of the mansion. We get sort of that one of those flashes to indicate more time has passed. And it looks like Cloud's been sleeping in the mansion because he's in the bedroom upstairs. And the grunt says to Cloud, Sephiroth seems different. And you go back down into the library and Sephiroth is laughing, which is never a good sign. <laughs> Villain 101. And he sees Cloud and he says, who is it? Ah, the traitor. Cloud says, Traitor? Uh, and so we're about to get a long block of exposition from Sephiroth here. He explains, The planet originally belonged to the Ketra. They were an itinerant race. They would migrate in, settle a planet, then move on. Now, there's a bit of a translation issue here, because I 
originally thought that meant that they were aliens, that they came into this planet and settled it. But there's an issue with planet versus land. So even though I originally thought the, the Ketra were, you know, I thought, oh, does that mean they're aliens? There will be lines from Aerith later that will explain that they moved around continent to continent and sort of would, would bring life uh, in, into that continent uh, because they could talk to the planet, right? All right. And at the end of their journey, Sephiroth says, it was said they would find the promised land. Again, what is this promised land? Does it exist? We don't know. Is it a metaphor? Shinrith seems to think it's a literal place where they can suck more energy out. But Sephiroth says they would find the promised land and supreme happiness. But there were many of the Ketra who disliked journeying. They stopped their migrations, they built shelters, and they elected to lead an easier life. They took that which the Ketra and the planet gave without giving back one whit in return. So the, the history, the folkloric history, the whatever, the story of, of the Ketra is that they would travel around the world and, and they would bring life in abundance. But some of them got tired of it and decided to basically create civilization. Sephiroth says, those are your ancestors. Yeah. Cloud. Yeah. So there was this ancient civilization and, and the people who decided to, uh, to stop the migration and to create cities, they lost that connection to the planet, and they, Sephiroth says, are traitors. That's an interesting argument. <laughs> Isn't it, though? Yeah. And it flips, as we've talked about almost always in Final Fantasy, but not always, the people who are on the side of nature is good and technology is dangerous and your cities and your pollution. So far in this game, that's that has been... Right there at the crux of the whole thing. But now, this guy's going to take it to this extraordinary extreme. Right. So, so as you know, if his mother was an ancient, then that means he's an ancient, and therefore I am of the ancients and of the planet, and you humans are of technology, aren't of the planet, and you are traitors. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting flip of that trope, right? Right, like you've gotta go because you're not treating the planet properly rather than hey we could all do a little bit better of a job or hey there's more than one way to live uh, <laughs> right those could have been right. some interesting conclusions to reach but it's kind of the uh the poison ivy ethos right uh the the batman right. villain right like i don't see her as much of a villain anymore like when i was a kid oh she's scary she's a villain now i'm like no she's kind of right but this is taking it that extra step yeah he says, long ago, disaster struck the planet. Your ancestors survived because they hid. The planet was saved by sacrificing the Ketra. Afterward, your ancestors multiplied. All that's left of the Ketra is in these reports. I am what was produced. And then he says, I'm going to see my mother. I... And yeah, yeah, and that that is the the point of no return. He is snapped. Yeah, and and totally self righteous too, right? Like, I you know my mother, Genova, an ancient, was experimented on to create me. Therefore, I'm the heir to the ancients, and therefore, what everything I'm about to do is totally justified, right? 
He was working from the premise of, I was born special, I was meant for great things, I have to make this somehow a great special thing that I and I alone can do. And, and that was his problem from, from the beginning. You know, like you said, it's the hero complex flipped on its head. And I also think it's interesting that he mentions in there that the sacrifice of the Ketra have once before saved the planet. Right. Yes. Oh, yeah. I'm breaking my heart. Yeah. I do also think it's interesting that whatever the disaster from thousands of years ago, or did we get the 2000 year number? can't remember it's one of those final fantasy ones and then later they would use the word calamity as well right 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 so we don't know what that disaster was yet and 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 that is that is of particular interest yeah yeah so sephiroth leaves uh and cloud chases after him and you go up that winding staircase the hidden staircase up to the mansion uh, and you go out the mansion and it's it's all very quiet uh, and you, you bust out the front doors of the mansion into the town of Nibelheim, and everything is on fire. Yeah, we've gone full horror show now. This is messed up. Yeah, the whole town is on fire. The whole town. No wonder they were hiding because they were afraid of us. Yeah. We do get a hero, Zangand. The martial artist with the red cape is jumping into houses and saving people, which is so cool. Love that dude. He doesn't get a lot of screen time, but I like him. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. As Cloud, you can run around again, interactive memory, and try to save people. He goes into a house and just comes back out a moment later, shaking his head. There's not really uh, a mention of it, but Cloud's house is on fire. He he said she died a few uh, a few days later, right? Yeah. This is that death, I assume. Yeah. But again, he doesn't want to talk about it. He doesn't mention it in this in this memory. No. And Barrett said, "Let's hear it all." And then we get this iconic shot of Sephiroth. This is like the iconic shot of Sephiroth. Yeah. Uh, first we see him like cutting down townspeople. Like what in the hell are you doing? Just cutting people down with that We've big We've seen sword. this guy slay a three-story tall dragon in the middle of the street. And now there's just these people in town who don't know what else to do trying to get him to stop. He probably doesn't even see them. Just cutting through them like it's nothing. And then we get that cutscene. That cutscene. Sephiroth is sort of looking at us. He's got his face tilted down a bit, and he's looking up at us through with his bright green Mako eyes uh, and his silver hair looking all gorgeous and the flames in the background. Stared right through our television and right into our living room and right into our souls. Yes, he did. And said, what are, you, what are you going to do? You know what I'm capable of. You've seen what I can do. I just lit this whole town on fire, killed everybody in it, because I'm having a bad day. 
And what are you going to do? You're going to try to stop me? You're going to follow me? Are you going to run through so. this literal wall of fire to come get me? Yeah, I dare you. <laughs> I was horrified. Yeah, like, no. I think I will go back to the chocobo farm and raise chocobos for the rest of my life. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry, Tifa. Sorry, Zangin, but... <laughs> it was a good run. But we are the heroes of a JRPG. So we do, as Sephiroth walks through the flames, uh, our heroes do follow, and we cut to the reactor. And I've been wondering this whole time, where's Tifa? Well, Tifa also followed Sephiroth, because apparently Tifa's dad was at the reactor, and Sephiroth cut him down. And now Tifa's there, and she's got his sword, and this is where she says that Shinra, Mako, Sephiroth, soldier, I hate them all. Yeah. And uh, we're in that room with the pods and the tiered uh, platforms and the stairs going up at what has to be uh, an OSHA regulation. Uh, <laughs> this is very steep. <laughs> just waiting to happen. Yeah. And she runs up at Sephiroth, who's standing at the door to Genova's chamber. And she tries to get revenge for her father, and he just overpowers her. He turns around, he grabs the sword from her and slashes her across the chest we get the slow motion of her uh, falling down, like sort of gracefully, uh, you know, through the air, down the stairs, and she tumbles down, uh, and Cloud uh, is, of course, furious. He's there at the bottom, and he sees it happen. Now she should have a big old scar on her chest, like squall, or... I would, I would think so, but maybe, uh, maybe Materia saved her? We're, we're not sure. Yeah. But Cloud is there, and, and he comes to her, and she says... You promised. Yeah. You promised you would come help yeah. if I was in trouble. You came. He's there. You came for me. So Cloud sort of carries her off to one side and, and puts her uh, over there so that she's out of the way. And he goes after Sephiroth, who has gone into Genova's chamber. And there's a, there's this, it's it's all shadowy and there's a lot of like sort of cyberpunk techno-punk stuff uh, in the shadows and in the background is sort of framing. I think it must be decorative. The, this, it's almost a sculpture of a woman's face and wings off, off this bust of shoulders yeah. mounted on a giant glass tube and you can't see beyond into the tube. You can just see this face and shoulders and metal wings. Yeah. Uh, and it's very wildly artistic and I, and I really dig it, but I'm not sure what the purpose of it is other than to look cool. I, I I think that's good enough because it doesn't just look cool. It is a striking image. And I, I guess the only uh, pragmatic reason I could see is that it was hiding what's behind it. Not right. especially well, but... Right, right. Well, okay, <clears throat> so I'll just describe the next thing that happens. Uh, Sephiroth climbs up, and, like these giant cables, like that's the only way to get up there. He's sort of walks up this ramp of cables to this machine on this tube. And he says, let's go to the promised land together. Mother was destined to become the ruler of this planet, but those worthless creatures are stealing the planet from her. And he grabs this machine bust thing and rips it off the, the big cylindrical tube. And these uh, big cables sort of pop off the back and Oil spills from them and like spills from the mouth of this sculpture thing. And one of the wings 
it is worth noting. Yeah. Falls off this sculpture. Very like, nice. Yeah. And beyond in the tomb, directly paralleling the espers of Final Fantasy VI, is a blue-skinned woman with a with a helmet thing attached to its head. Oh, and it has its head. Uh, and right. the, the certainly the right nipple still appears to be a closed eye, and and only its left eye is open and it's shining bright red. And and on the helmet thing, the the sort of techno helmet thing, which maybe was feeding into the bust sculpture outside. Tough to say really what's going on here with that. But uh, on the helmet it says Genova. So this is her. This is the ancient. What an amazing first shot. This imagery is classic too. Almost as classic as Sephiroth standing in the flames and staring you down and turning and walking away which parallels uh, a scene later that's probably the most classic scene in the game. It's the opposite of it. But this character, the first reveal, we've talk, we keep talking about Sephiroth as the shark in Jaws, but Genova, we've, we've only seen her torso and, and keep hearing about her in this thing. And, and then you see her as he rips off this weird cyber techno thing that you described, and there she is. And it's and the the zoom in onto her again camera movements and the 3D and the music and uh, this again is a, a full motion video and it's just like it, it was we never experienced anything like this in gaming before if you thought the intro to Final Fantasy VII you know really brought us into the world of 3D cinematic gaming and it did and it, and it's you know it's earned its place as like wow that was really a moment. But then what do you do with it? Like, once, you, once you've once you got the ball in your court, it's time to go. And this cinematically from, like I said, kind of the moment I started getting scared. But even if you want to go with the full motion video and you want to go from the time Sephiroth walks out of that library and burns the town down and stares you down and goes up here and rips this thing off. And like, this was beyond... This was miles beyond anything we had seen in video games before. So Cloud says, what about my sadness? <sighs> and I feel like that's kind of an odd word choice. I would have used grief. Grief, sure. Or, or despair or something, because he's just seen his town burn down. Sadness seems like an odd way to phrase it. Uh, but he says, what about my sadness? It's the same as yours. And Sephiroth says, Sadness? What do I have to be sad about? I am the chosen one. And you know what? Different chosen ones accept that responsibility differently, right? We've already talked about that, but I'm reminded of Harry Potter, specifically the movie version of Harry Potter, where uh, they're in the library and, and Hermione says to him, she's just interested in you because she thinks you're the chosen one. And he says, but I am the chosen one. And Hermione in her infinite wisdom, smacks him upside the head. Right. Like, yeah, that's right. You know what? Sephiroth needed a Hermione. That's right. Well, you know what? But he has it. He has it here in Cloud. And he just doesn't accept the... He doesn't ac- ac- accept the uh, the bop upside the head, as it were. Right. But uh, the, the heroes rarely, however chosen they may be, actually say, I am the chosen one. That's, that's, right. that's villain speak. 
I alone can fix it. Yeah. I am the chosen one. I, yeah. And, and we've talked about that before. <laughs> so Cloud has, has a line here. Uh, he says, I trusted you. And Sephiroth lifts his sword into a classic, we're about to throw down pose. And Cloud lifts his sword into a classic, we're about to throw down pose. And it, it flashes to Sephiroth and then Cloud and then Sephiroth and Cloud and then Sephiroth and yeah. Cloud faster and faster and faster until that's it. We get a, we get a flashback to the future. <laughs> yeah. Or to the modern times. <laughs> uh, and that's an old uh, samurai movie thing too uh in its original playstation version i don't think it works quite as well it maybe even comes off just a little bit hokey which is too bad um Uh but it almost heightens that much more a moment that will come way later like at the very end of this whole thing uh there will be a callback to that showdown flashback back and forth between the two of them camera movement thing uh Playing with all the tools in the sandbox. They were like, we can just do crazy camera stuff and we're going to. And we come back to uh, to modern day. Cloud uh, in, in the room with his friends, and he says, and that's the end of my story. And Barrett says, <laughs> what? No, what? <laughs> what happened? What happened to Genova? What happened? Was there a fight? What happened to Tifa? How is she okay? Uh, and Cloud says, lots of questions, right? And Cloud says, I, I don't remember. I do know that I couldn't have killed him. He's way stronger, way more skilled than me. And... I also want to know the truth. And there's some back and forth between Tifa and Aerith and Barrett all saying, you know, there, there's a lot of holes here. A lot of this doesn't make sense. You know, how did Tifa survive? All of that. And, and they basically resolve to figure out what happened next. Which is such a great way of admitting that there's a lot wrong with the story, of laying the foundation, that there's more that needs to be filled in here, but they still manage to surprise us with (laughs) what manages to be filled, because it's not just that there's more details we need, it's that some of the stuff that we just went through, as we've said before, not quite right. And so a lot of people have a lot of questions, and we're going to go about trying to answer them. So after this really intense, basically hour and a half long flashback, we get the town music again. The, there's that nice, calm, huh, calm, right. the, 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 music, the town music of the town calm, right? Um, and Red 13 gets to say, what a fascinating tale. Yeah. And, and that really is the end of the flashback. There's, like, like we said, there's a, there's a lot still to be discussed. From a gameplay point of view, it's worth noting that this is where you get basically the cell phone that allows you to swap party members in and out. And then it's oh, also there's a mega elixir hidden in, the, in a dresser in this room, so don't forget that. And then you've just got to go back to the ranch and buy some chocobo, some, some greens, some vegetables, so you can catch a chocobo, which is actually kind of a pain in the neck, so that you can cross the marsh. 
And this really caps off, for me, this is kind of the epilogue of the story we've just been told. Is that once we get to the other side of the marsh, the Midgarzormer, <laughs> the giant serpent monster creature, who we were unable to progress to the rest of the world because he was blocking our path. Clearly an insurmountable odd in our way. Had to get the chocobo so we could run away from it. And get to the other side. And we see there, impaled on the trunk of a tree, the Midgar Zolom, or one. I don't know if there's supposed to be more than one. Well, there is, because you can go back and fight one later. So there must have been two in that marsh before, and now there's just the one. And there's no question about who could possibly have done this. Again, we know what he's capable of now more, much more so than we did before. And it just kind of puts a bow on the task that is in front of our heroes here. They know that there will one day have to be a final showdown with Sephiroth. We are chasing him down. We know he's killed President Shinra, so we know he's still out there. And we know that not that long ago, he took the scariest thing that we've come up against in this world so far and just impaled it on the trunk of a tree because he can. So it shows that we're going to have to face him, but it shows that he knows he's going to have to face us too because he could have killed this monster and left it to rot in the swamp. But no, he <laughs> knows our heroes are following him and he did this to show them, right? This is a warning. This is that glare from the fire. Right? You followed me once before, Cloud. Do you really want to do this again? He's the head games begin. Or continue. <laughs> That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening, and thank you to everyone who's reached out to us. Feel free to let us know what we missed, got wrong, or should have mentioned. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at FFWeeklyPod, or you can email us at FinalFantasyWeekly at gmail.com. We are also on Patreon. You can listen to every episode of the podcast for free, but if you'd like to download it to your normal podcast app, you can do so for as little as $1 a month. Join us next time when we continue our chase of the man in black, witness a swearing-in ceremony, and meet our favorite ninja materia thief.